number two of the show on your Tuesday. Matt McNeil, the Matt McNeil Show. Matt and Patrick, on your Valentine's Day. Oh, I've got a heartbreaking story for you, Patrick, coming up here in a little bit about Valentine's Day. Uh, I do hope you have a nice Valentine's Day. But did I hear you correctly in the weather forecast say thunderstorms? Yep, that was definitely a possibility this afternoon. I don't know if we actually got any thunder, but it was in the official forecast. Yeah, but hey, the environment's not damaged. It's just February in Minnesota when we never used to have rain. 952-946-6205. Usually at this point on a Tuesday, we uh, welcome into the show the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Cooligan, uh, with Brett. Brett is on vacation, so we've suckered him in. Patrick Cooligan, kind enough to join us right now to talk about some of the stories the Minnesota Reformer is covering. Hi, Patrick. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you on the air. Thanks for joining us live today. It's nice to have you here. Uh, the uh, You, as editor-in-the-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, have a very good perspective to talk a little bit about what's happened over at the, the Star Tribune. Um, the Steve Grove, who's been the commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development, is now the CEO and publisher of the Star Tribune. Talk a little bit about uh, this change. Yeah, quite uh, quite an announcement. Uh, I was certainly a little taken aback by it. Uh, he comes in with a, a great resume for the job. He has he was a reporter for the Boston Globe and ABC News, and then he went off and did some uh, digital uh, kind of uh, news uh, innovation stuff with Google, um, and then came home to Minnesota to be the commissioner of. Uh, Economic employment, economic development for for Tim Walls. By all accounts, he's been good at the job. They were certainly um, very good about getting uh, the, the unemployment system uh, ready to go and getting checks out during the pandemic, which is a big job. And then also, he was a key liaison between Walls and business, the business community during the pandemic, when there was all those kind of confusing rules and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I mean, I just think it's very awkward to have uh, someone from the administration now be the, the publisher and CEO of the state's largest uh, media outlet. Um, and uh, I, I just think that um, it creates a, um, uh, an appearance of uh, coziness um, that we don't usually like uh, as journalists. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't work there. I did used to work at the Star Tribune for five years, um, and I certainly have friends, um, and my wife works there as well currently. Um, and, and so I don't, but, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying, it's not like I've talked to people to start to read or anything. I just think as a journalist myself, uh, I, I would, I would find that a little awkward, um, to have someone so close to the governor, um, be running, uh, the, the company like that right now. Was Grove ever one of the, going back to his term with walls, was, was he ever one of the Republican commissioner or Democratic commissioners that, that the Republicans targeted, or was he pretty much never really brought up in one in, in their attempts to, you know, when they were threatening to, to dethrone commissioners was what, what was the Republican mentality towards Grove? Do you know? The, yeah, the, uh, I think the business community uh, really liked him and trusted him. Um, they felt like uh, he kind of um, was at least willing to listen to them, um, and also to some extent maybe he kind of came from their world, um, if that makes sense. I mean, worked at Google, he, he went to Harvard Kennedy School, and kind of has this elite resume, and um, and I think that somebody like Charlie Weaver from the Minnesota Business Partnership felt like he could 
you know, he could talk to to, to Grove, and mm-hmm. Grove would listen to him. And and then by extension, uh, Senate Republicans um, did not want. Uh, I think were kind of warned that that would be a bad move uh, to mess with uh, with Grove. They never confirmed him, but they they also didn't sack him like they did a couple other commissioners. It, it doesn't necessarily mean he was endorsed by Republicans, but at least it w- he wasn't necessarily a prime target there. Now, I generally don't keep up with my employment searches for me- large media outlets per se. Had there been a large search going on for the next publisher and CEO of the Star Tribune? Was there a very public hiring process in this? Yeah, Mike Klingensmith was, a, I think, considered a pretty top-notch publisher because he kept the paper in pretty strong financial condition despite the the struggles of, of big city newspapers all over the country and, and they'd done pretty well and uh, he announced his retirement last year and so they they ran some uh, national search um, and I um, I mean there were some kind of familiar names that were mentioned I'd not heard it's not like I'd, I didn't track it closer or anything but I'd certainly not heard Grove's name um, and uh, but here we are. I mean, it it has kind of like a small town feel to it. I mean, especially since the owner of the paper, Glenn Taylor, is already a kind of politically active and has a sprawling business empire. So, you know, the the newspaper, in in my vision, you know, certainly at the Reformer. I mean, we stand kind of really on a on a on the other side of a dividing line between people in power. I mean, we don't really think of ourselves as being part of a power structure. And, and I think the, the Star Tribune is very much part of the Minnesota power structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Minnesota Reformer is the gold standard in my mind, as far as news reporting going on in the city right now. You guys are brilliant over there. Uh, I'm a big fan of a lot of your writers because you guys do it very cleanly and there isn't a bias. It's very straightforward reporting, and I do enjoy that. My relationship with the Star Tribune has been an interesting one. On one side, I think they've got some of the the best writers. I'm a huge fan of Brianna Bierschbach, um, uh, and uh, as well as uh, uh, Susan Dew. Uh, the other writers there, I think Annie Mannix is an exceptional reporter who does not get the support that he needs in that newspaper, for God's sakes. So I've been very clear that there are some writers in there that are very good. At the same time, I have consistently picked apart that newspaper for inexplicable bias at times, which is, is, is been very unfortunate. I mean, as a matter of fact, I, I got so tired of their conservative, their bias towards the conservatives that, you know, over the time that I basically canceled my subscription. I just, it was, it was not something I wanted to do as far as a paper comes in. This is, you know, it, 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 are, are we expecting a major shift in how things are going to be covered there? I mean, obviously when you have a CEO, and publisher come on in, it's going to change a little bit of the the, the, the navigation, but I mean, a, a, an extremely abrupt change is probably not going to necessarily go over well, will it? Yeah, I don't really expect a huge um, change in coverage, at least right away. Um, but I do think it's interesting that Grove has a really a journalist background. So, I mean, when he reads the paper, you know, when he reads stories, I think he's going to have pretty strong thoughts about how stories are selected and reported and written and structured and so forth. Um, and, you know, he may decide he, he doesn't want to interfere in that side of the, the operation, and that would be a smart move. <laughs> um, but, um, and, and the other thing is he's got a huge task ahead of him to try to, uh, I mean, the Star Tribune has hung on to print subscribers longer than, than most big city newspapers, and that's helped 
prop up their print advertising, um, which is a very important. At least it was uh, uh, traditionally; it's been important. Um, and so he's got to make that help them make continue to make that transformation to digital, mm-hmm. um, and and that's going to be a huge task. And um, it, it's they have um, they have a cultural issue there with a a, a, a devotion to print. Um, that they're going to have to adjust to in the next 10 years. So he's got, my point is, he's got like a big business path. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's it's too big for him to be paying much attention to uh, what's actually on the content side. On the other hand, I mean, you can't drive a digital strategy without at least paying attention to what content you're producing. A word I hate, I should say, reporting and writing and yeah. photography. Well, I, I, I'm sure they'll still have the Adina stories. Uh- <laughs> just so they'll, yeah. they're, of course, they're going to have it. But I mean, that brings up the interesting question: Are, Is the concern by you, as, as someone that watches news media, is the concern for you that okay, the Walls administration might not get the the, the microscope it does, needs to have from the the, the 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 media in the town, in the newspaper in this town, or is it more the business transactions, which are a bigger question? Because, like I said, I mean, this guy's got a big history with business. Will we get real good analysis of? You know, you know, business going goings on, especially when it makes the businesses look bad. Yeah, I mean that's a question. I mean, he he comes from Google. Google's got a huge antitrust um, issue, um, and uh, you know, as far as the walls, uh, the situation with walls, um, you know, I, I think it just remains to be seen. Um, one thing that I've seen at other organizations is you tend to kind of internalize what you think the upper management wants. So it might not be explicit, like, but um, for the first time that somebody tries to write a tough story about something going on in the administration and then there's questions from above, then everybody's going to start to wonder, like, where is this coming from? Um, And, you know, and again, this is all just it's speculation and it's probably unfair of me to even insinuate this stuff, but this is what happens when you pick a guy from the governor's cabinet to be your publisher. These questions of course are going to arrive. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it bluntly. I I know enough reporters of my time. I guarantee you some reporters are going to try to go find a story on walls just to see how it goes. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) They're going to try to find something dirty on walls to see if it gets published out there. We'll have to see how this all plays out, but obviously a change there. Uh, Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer joining us. Let's uh, talk about, hey, uh, apparently there's a missile that uh, the, 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 the fighter squadron that's based in Duluth uh, we went out to take out the balloon in Lake Huron, and apparently, did they miss with one of the missiles and it landed in Lake Huron? Apparently, um, <laughs> and I and I think it's going to be difficult, uh, if not impossible, to to recover this stuff. Yeah. Um. They they said the three objects. Um. You know, we don't have much detail on them. Were each shot down Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um over three spots, Alaska, Canadian Wilderness, and Lake Huron. Um, and then apparently some missile wound up in Lake Huron because they missed on the first shot. <laughs> well, do we know, did we just, did we just send a missile into Canada? Because that's a little bit of an issue with Lake Huron. Uh, it does kind of cross over onto the side. If we, did we scream, you know, you know an, I've had enough with Rush and basically launch that sucker. Um, I, I, any idea where it's at, how deep it is? And, and is there any potential danger? Um, 
Well, you know, being the Pentagon, um, you know, we don't know much. Um, uh, yes. And when they've said that it's going to be difficult for them um, to track, I mean, it's a huge lake. <laughs> it's the middle of winter. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I think it's going to be difficult. It's a bad day for a sturgeon. I'm just going to let you know. It's a bad day for yeah. <laughs> the U.S. Air Force just declared war on you. Uh, let's talk. Yeah, the quote that they gave, I'll, I'll say, is it, it, the missile landed harmlessly in the water of Lake Huron. We tracked it all the way down, and we made sure the airspace was clear of any commercial, civilian, or recreational traffic. Oh, okay. So no ice fishermen were injured. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm glad they got the balloon. As a matter of fact, I imagine, considering how they're trying to shoot these things down, it was a bit of a relief that it was over Lake Huron. It's like, okay, we can knock it down, and the chances of hitting anything are pretty slim. But, you know, you might right. want to it's, – it's a pretty big balloon. I'm kind of surprised they missed. So – the uh, I want to mention the other story here, and uh, it, this was this one's an interesting one. It's the the lawnmower gas ban that basically the Democrats are introducing a new bill that basically says that we can't have starting in, I guess in 2024, no more gas powered engines on leaf blowers and um, as well as 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 lawnmowers in the state under a certain size. And I'll get back to that point in a second, but talk a little bit about this. How much, how much traction does this bill have? I don't really see this passing and, um, it makes me wonder, um, why they have introduced it. Yeah. Um, because the politics of this, I don't think are particularly good. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and defend gas stoves or anything, but it sort of, it just helps the opposition caricature you when you're banning everybody's gas stove and now their, their lawnmower and that kind of thing. There's, you know, there's a lot of Americans who, uh, for whom their, their, their lawnmower and their leaf blower are about as valuable as their, their uh, second born son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so I, I mean, the, the, the actual policy of it, um, it's defensible. I mean, that there's, uh, you know, these, the engines that they use are, are typically dirty two stroke engines. And, um, as our writer, Max noted, a study by Edmonds found in 2011, that a consumer grade leaf blower emits more pollutants than a full size high performance pickup truck. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these things are, are bad polluters and we're trying to move to electrification and, um, certainly the, the path there, um, is through regulation, but, um, I'm just not really sure if um, if now is the right time. Um, although no time like the present, I guess. Well, and I, two things correct. It's 2025. They want to make them illegal by 2025. Leaf blowers and weed whackers, as well as the lawnmowers. Here's the problem I've got. You just nailed it. You're walking into a the, the prop of the plane. This is something that, especially when you drive out into rural Minnesota and you see these massive lawns where the guy's on his John Deere tractor. Now, I'm not sure. The, 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 uh, it does not include snowblowers, by the way, but it would apply to all lawn and garden equipment powered at or below 12 kilowatts or 25 gross horsepower. I'm not sure where like a riding lawnmower would get there, but you know as well as I do, even if the riding lawnmowers are not included in this, that's the narrative the Republicans are going to run with, and it's going to completely derail any attempt because, let's face it, in, in even in kind of the suburban districts, people like their, their lawnmowers. They love them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like part of Minnesota character is, you you know, they, that you use your lawnmower and your snowblower on the same day. <laughs> and, you know, now they're going to take them from us and, you know, they're going to take my gas stove and, you know, it's all, um, it's just, it just feels a little unnecessary. 
Um, you know, you got the 2040 plan last week, uh, which is going to require the utilities or the major emitters. Um, they're going to require the utilities to switch over to, to carbon-free electricity by 2040. Um, you know, take take that victory and maybe tuck this one away uh, a couple years from now. Here's here's the point I would make, and I mean, you and I are you're a reporter. I'm just a talking chimp, but. I would say this: they would be a much better idea as opposed to ban them, give massive discounts, tax you know, tax rebates for either buying them for their house or for corporations that are upgrading their equipment to go all electric. That way, it's the individual choice. And frankly, you got some money to do on this. I I, I think then it, then you at least don't paint yourself in the corner of you're trying to steal my John Deere. And I think that that's that's the problem. I, I think tax breaks and tax incentives, and you can make them pretty substantial, would be the better way to go. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. If you if you kind of make it uh, give people a great deal to to switch over to electric, um, then that's something they could go along with. Absolutely. Um, so incentives instead of mandates. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Cooligan is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, and I'm dead serious. It's the best news reporting source in Minneapolis-St. Paul right now. If you are not following it at minnesotareformer.com, you're wrong. Uh, Patrick Cooligan, Patrick, I'll drive to everyone to the website so they can go read these stories that you and I mentioned as well. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Take care. Patrick Cooligan, editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.